I get to uh, bring to you this morning this passage from 1 Peter 3, uh, 13 through 17. Um, let me show you a picture here. It's a picture of Peter. Uh, I hope, there he is, upside down. It's Peter being crucified upside down. Now, we can't prove with historical certainty that this is in fact the way Peter died. We know that he was martyred for his faith. We know that he was crucified. We're pretty sure of that. Um, We can't prove for absolute certain, though, that um, the crucifixion was carried out in this strange way that sort of um, echoed the crucifixion of Jesus but made fun of it or distinguished itself in some way. This 12th century piece of enamel artwork um, captures the legend But even though we can't prove it historically, the reason the legend stuck and is repeated, and the reason I'm repeating it again this morning, um, is that there's something upside down about the lesson we're going to learn from Peter. There's something backwards in the life that we're called to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, we're going to learn this lesson today from this apostle, from this one little passage of scripture, just from these these few verses, really, just four verses, and we're not even going to get all the way through them. it's a lesson that could turn everything around for you. So let's look at these four verses. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now, to, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, here's what I mean by something being upside down in Peter's teaching. He, in this passage, asks, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? That question, asked that way, seems uh, like a rhetorical question. It seems like common sense. Who's gonna wrong you if you're right? Who's gonna treat you bad if you do what's good? Sounds rhetorical, expecting the answer, nobody. But look who's asking it. He looks like somebody harmed him for doing good. And in fact, in Peter's time, the audience that he was writing to may well have all stood up in unison and shouted back in answer to this question, Nero, you stupid apostle. Don't talk like that to apostles. But they were under persecution, and Peter sort of blithely asked, well, after all, who's going to harm you if you do what's good? Nero is going to be bad to us if we are zealous for the good. Nero will nail you to a cross upside down for doing what is good. Look, it's written right on his arm, Peter. How hard could this answer be? That doesn't say nerd. That says Nero. In fact, the obvious answer to this question of Peter's is, bad people will harm you if you do good. Or more to the point, people who sharply disagree with you about what the good is, and people who are zealous about what they think the good is, and zealous about making sure that you agree with them. Now, the good is a pretty abstract word. Look here, there are different ideas of what is good. It's a little Venn diagram for you. You can distinguish what the world thinks is good from what God thinks is good, and it's very nice that there is, in this Venn diagram, some overlap, where God and the world agree about some common values. 
I think it's fantastic when there's some overlap. What if there weren't? What a terrible situation we would be in. Remember that 80s movie, Conan the Barbarian? It had that one guy in it, uh, Schwarzenegger or something, whatever his name. Um, and there's a scene early on that kind of establishes, it's one of the things that establishes Conan's credentials as the biggest, baddest, barbarianist of the barbarians. They're all sitting around in a yurt or something, and they're kind of arguing about what is good, and they're just, people are just naming random things like the wind in your barbarian hair, things like that. And then they all kind of turn to Conan, and there's this recognition that this is the guy, like he has the most massive chest muscles, and we're going to ask him, Conan, what is good? And he looks like what you might think of as thoughtful, possibly, and then he says, to crush your enemies and see them driven before you to hear the lamentations of their women. <laughs> and everyone goes, oh yeah, this is good. And then they, they eat chicken legs or something. Um, so imagine, uh, imagine a world like that. There would be precious little overlap between the world's idea of good to crush our enemies and God's. But let us praise God that there is more overlap than that in our situation, considerably more. And we should rejoice in everything we have in common. Um, with other people. A shrewd refugee, and of course that's what Peter calls us, chosen exiles, sojourners, exiles. A shrewd refugee will make the most of common ground and rejoice in everything we have in common with the people uh, who are zealous for a worldly idea of what the good is, yea, for every inch of common ground. But an exile who is loyal to his home country won't flinch on the uncommon ground that area that's not in the overlap, but that is distinctively only something valued um, by Christians. Uncommon, of course, is another way of saying holy. This is the common versus the holy, and this area that's not in common is something that is a holy piece of territory. That right area over there is the weirdness zone. Now, the middle part is really cool, and and we should be glad that we're in a culture that um, values Uh, feeding people and protecting victims and there's all kinds of justice causes that are worth celebrating together and education is a great good and this is the kind of thing we can nod our heads and go along and say. But then there's this other side which is just us. We think we should make disciples and serve the Lord and that's kind of nonsense to a lot of the people that we share certain goods with. Um, so here's an example. Think about Mother Teresa. Remember when Mother Teresa was always doing interviews and the, uh, when she kind of became an international superstar, they'd send reporters there and they'd ask her, Mother Teresa, you're doing a great work here in Calcutta, you know, feeding the poor and caring for the dying and all these, all these works of mercy that you're doing. Um, aren't you doing it because of the inherent goodness of mankind? And she would say, um, I'm doing it because Jesus told me to. And they'd say, ah, well, we can't really quote that. That was weird. Um, but is it... <laughs> Is it like when, you, when people come in and they're very needy and you know that like they're, they're dying and they need a place to die with some dignity, do you do that because, because you love them? Does your, does your tender Mother Teresa heart just go out to them? And she says, hmm, Jesus comes to us disguised as the very poor and you never know which one of these poor people could be Jesus in disguise. They all are. And the reporters go, yeah, I can't quote that either because that was just... That, that was strange. I don't even know what you're talking about there. Could you just put this in a way that we all agree on that like it's good to help people? And she occasionally could. So you'll see lots of Mother Teresa quotes out there that are palatable for the general public. Um, but if you can get them in context, she always ruins it by saying something Christian. I mean, another example closer to home is, is Grace's food bank ministry. We distribute food to people who are in a time of financial need. Why? We do it because we love people and we want to help and we're zealous for the good of nutrition and nourishment and family meals and human dignity. We're all on board with that. But we also do it because we're obeying God's word 
And in fact, if you were here for the founding of Grace's Food Bank Ministry, it started with a sermon on Isaiah, which is just a really weird, unacceptable answer, right? So if they were to send a news crew out and say, wow, this is an impressive operation. If you've never helped with a food bank, do it. Like on Thursday, unload the truck, or on Friday, help meet people and walk them through and pray with them. Um, it's really quite an operation. And if the news crew were to say, why, would you, why are you doing this? Um, and we were to give an answer like, well, once upon a time, we all drove our motor vehicles to church and turned off our cell phones and listened to a sermon about an ancient Near Eastern manuscript in which a prophet spoke for God and called us to serve people. So that's why we do that. And they think, well, that is bizarre. That sounds like a strange pre-modern UFO saucer cult or something. I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, I, I wanted you to say you just love people and you see a need and you want to help them end of story, because those are the common values. We didn't want to say, we didn't want to hear, we read an ancient scroll and found our marching orders, so we got a truck and filled it with food. To make matters worse, at Food Bank, we insist on praying for people and even praying with people. Why? Because the Grace Food Bank volunteers are zealous for the good. They believe in serving the Lord and in making disciples. Now, it's always really tempting to downplay this right-hand side and only ever present your Christian faith in terms of the shared values there in the middle. If somebody asks you why you pursue these things, you could sort of skip over that controversial bit and say, oh, we're motivated by pure, sweet love of neighbor. It's not about God or Jesus. Why would we even bring that up? It's just love, 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 just bubbling up inside us and flowing out. Well, that's a problem, right? Just imagine for a minute that God is standing there right beside you, listening to you, take credit for all your beautiful intentions and hard work, and listening to you leave him pointedly out of the picture. Uh, listening to you give glory to the world's value system and your own inherent correctness. So don't do that if you're aware that God's sort of overhearing you. Instead, testify. You don't have to be a jerk about it. You don't have to Jesus juke every conversation. Like, I see you're using a phone. You know who didn't have a phone? Jesus, right? <laughs> Uh, you, can, you can be sensitive. You also don't have to be a jerk and reject the genuine areas of common ground. For instance, are you doing this because you love people? No, I don't love people. I'm doing it because God told me to, right? <laughs> you don't have to deny the common ground, but you do have to make sure you get to the unusual bit, the main thing. You have to be zealous for the good, the whole good, and nothing but the good. You have to make sure you don't leave out the most important part. Because that's what the commitment to God and Christ under our zeal for the good is. It's, the, it's not just the little skinny right-hand margin of the Christian value system that makes us odd. It's what makes the good good. It's what changes everything about everything we do because God is what gives meaning to all of it. So here's an example from the Bible. In John chapter 10, Jesus is um, going about doing good, as Peter says of him later. Uh, he's healing and he's teaching and he's doing all these things. And uh, he's giving glory to God the Father. And as he's doing them, he's saying, uh, the works I do bear witness of me, and I and the Father are one. Well, in John 10, 31, the Jews, it says, picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. You see, they're having a little philosophical dispute over the nature of the good. I mean, they're having it with rocks, but they're still having a philosophical dispute over what good is. They are not content to let Jesus have his own idea about what the good is. It turns out all the cool stuff he was doing that they liked, he was doing because he thought he was some kind of sent forth from God, savior of the world, some kind of equal with God, the father, uh, special guy. 
And in the world's view, it's not good enough to do good. You've gotta be doing good for the right reasons. You gotta stay in line. And as far as the world is concerned, if you're doing them for the wrong reasons, you're trouble. You're at least potential trouble, and you might already be trouble. Each of these attitudes has some ultimate good that gives meaning to the rest. Each of these circles that I've drawn here, they have a kind of completeness in themselves. For us, it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's what gives goodness to the good. For the world, it's something else. And in many cases, uh, the world's idea of good actually comes down to the fact that we can't possibly know what good is, positively speaking, but we know bad when we see it and can re- we can react against it. So two negatives must multiply to make a positive, so we must get our idea of good from negating suffering. So you end up with uh, solutions like stopping suffering equals the good. That's a double negative way of getting to something good. And then in general, all the good works that people do end up being part of this overall search for meaning because meaning and goodness are things that humans generate here as we work together against inhumanity. Sexual freedom also is increasingly a non-negotiable part of the good. It's a package deal and you have to accept absolute sexual freedom. And above all, the common sense on this side necessarily enthrones the alleviation of suffering, not just as a signpost toward the good, but as the actual good itself derived by negation of the bad. Now, if the right-hand zone was the weirdness zone, the left-hand zone is the persecution zone. It's where the world puts pressure on Christians to agree that we're doing what we're doing for the same reasons. In 1 Peter 2.13, Peter said, be subject to every human institution. But don't forget the crucial bit, for the Lord's sake. What he said was, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Why do we obey human institutions? Because of the Lord. If the concerns of the Lord Jesus Christ line up with the concerns of a government I'm under or the job I work at or the social group I run with, then just watch me be subject to it. I will be a good citizen. Why? Because the Lord told me to. I will be right there with everyone else. But if these two things conflict with each other, what does Peter say? In Acts Acts chapter five, he says, when there's a conflict, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, some bosses can't stand this. They think that if you only obey them because you're obeying somebody higher than them, that doesn't count as obeying them. Some friends think that if you're only loving them because you love God more, you're not really loving them. Somehow that negates it. Some people are downright insulted to find out that there's a higher allegiance that claims the Christian's allegiance. They generally won't admit it out loud in so many words, but they don't want there to be a God who pulls rank on them because they wanna be God. But we can't all be God, only God gets to be God. So here's a stark example from the world of political totalitarianism. And then I'll turn down the heat on my examples a little bit. Theologian Karl Barth was teaching Christian doctrine at the University of Bonn, Germany in 1934. You don't have to know a lot of world history, European history to know what's going on in 1934. When the word went out that all civil servants, and at a public university that included a theology teacher, they had to take an oath of loyalty to Hitler. That is, not a pledge of allegiance to the flag, not a promise to support the constitution or to obey the laws, but a new kind of oath, a personal oath of loyalty to the leader, the Fuhrer. The text of that oath is this, like don't film this and take it out of context, but on YouTube or anything. I swear I will be faithful and obedient to the leader of the German empire and people, Adolf Hitler, to observe the law and to conscientiously fulfill my official duties, so help me God. Now Bart was Swiss and it was beginning to become obvious to him that the way things were going, it was just a matter of time before he'd have to leave Germany and return to Switzerland. But he wanted to put it off as long as possible 
So he offered to take the oath as long as he could add this little stipulation that he could, quote, be loyal to the Fuhrer only within his responsibilities as an evangelical Christian. That's all, just that little stipulation, and he was going to take an oath of loyalty to Hitler. But that was not enough. Within a couple of weeks, he was suspended from teaching, uh, and the charge was that it should have gone without saying. It should have gone without saying that the Fuhrer did not require anything that was against God's commandment. Well, that can mean a couple things, right? It could be because he's God, so of course he can't command anything against God's commandment. Um, And Bart said, well, with that clarification, if you're saying it's understood that my commitment to God is higher than this, then we really don't have a disagreement, right? And the charge was, no, you're still fired because um, the mere fact that the thought of this qualification had come to mind proved that his attitude to the national socialist state was incorrect. So he could not be trusted as a teacher of the German youth. How about that? The mere fact that the qualification came to mind, right? Are you going to pledge loyalty? Yeah, insofar as I can as a Christian. Mm, That's a problem right there. But we don't have to play the Nazi card uh, to show how important it is that our zeal for the good has to be a zeal for God that throws every other commitment uh, into the shade. There are plenty of boyfriends and bosses and businesses that are just as totalitarian in their demands on our hearts. They just can't stand the competition. It reminds me of the situation where parents leave an older sibling in charge of a younger sibling while they're gone, and the older sibling starts uh, bossing the younger one around as if they have their own independent authority, and they start lording it over them. You know, they say, hey, you, take out the trash. And the younger one says, okay, I was going to take out the trash anyway because mom said so, so I will now obey mom and take out the trash. No, do it because I said so. No, I'm not doing anything because you said so. I'm doing it all because mom said so. Hmm. I still say I take out the trash and I see you taking out the trash, so we'll just put that down in the obedience column. You can tell I'm a second born. Uh, The older sibling can pretend she's getting obedience, um, but she's fooling herself, right? It's a delegated authority. We are to be zealous for the good, all the good. The world, if it leaves God out of the picture, has a thin, weak, hazy, shaky, and impermanent notion of what good is. What is good? To crush your enemies. No, not to crush your enemies. But surely to avoid suffering is what is good, right? That's got to be common sense. That is what you think good is if you only got there by negating bad. If you, don't, if you do know what good is, you look kind of crazy. And that brings us back to poor upside-down Peter, who says this in, in uh, 3.14, if you suffer for righteousness, you will be blessed. You know, over in 4.14, he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, if you think not suffering is the highest good, then suffering and blessedness are just plain opposites. And it's nuts to put them together and say, you're blessed if you're suffering. If you suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. This only makes sense if a higher value has come in and communicates its goodness to things below it. Um, If the righteousness of God is higher, then there's no contradiction to suffer and be blessed. And I don't think Peter's saying here, if you suffer for righteousness now, you'll be blessed later on. I'm pretty sure what he's saying here is that suffering and blessedness, suffering for righteousness and blessedness aren't contradictions. They're all under the umbrella of an actual good. This is why preachers who push the prosperity doctrine, the idea that what God wants above all is to bless you with health and wealth and enjoyment and favor and fame, have usually got a hold of the Bible by the wrong end. They read verse after verse exactly backwards. You show me somebody who preaches that God will reward the faithful with prosperity and health, 
And I'll show you somebody who has Bible verses memorized but hasn't bothered to strip out their shallow worldly idea of what good is and replace it with a revolutionary, mind-transforming reversal that Jesus brought. Seek above all the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So Peter, upside down here, is the only one who's right side up. He's doing it backwards because backwards is the only way to get life to come out right. Did you know there are some things that you have to do backwards? I tried to think of examples from, uh, from cooking or from a domestic sphere, but I, I couldn't come up with any clear examples. I don't know, like upside down cake would be kind of doing it wrong. Um, but I used to work in a print shop, and in a print shop, almost everything you do is a reversal of the way you want things to come out. Um, whether you go with the original art, where someone brings you original art, and then you make a negative of it in order to burn a positive plate in order to print. So the pre-pressed stuff is all, got to do this backwards or it won't be right. And then you print it, and at least the kind of printing I did was, um, then the plate prints onto a rubber blanket backwards. It's got to be perfectly backwards exactly so that when it transfers to paper, it'll be right again. So there's another reversal. Um, So we've already flipped it a couple of times here, right, to get it to come out right. And then, um, mercy, if you have to actually print it as a booklet, you end up into this weird dance where you're printing everything sort of backwards and upside down so that when you cut it and bend it and fold it, It'll be together as a book in the right order. There are times when I've taken a book through the entire process and you say, I think I flipped it 13 or 15 times, but I lost count, right? But as long as it's a, no, it's gotta be an even number, right? 12 or 14 times, 13 or 15, it'd still be backwards. Another thing you gotta do backwards to get right is backing up with a trailer. You ever back up with a trailer? You know, when you're driving, it kind of makes sense. You wanna go right, you turn to the right. You're backing up though, you're pushing a trailer from a pivot point behind you. You have to turn the wheel left to go right. It's kind of crazy making. And if you're ever in a situation where uh, a job requires you to back up with two trailers, I did this uh, at a job in Missouri, you have to reverse reverse it so that as you're pushing the two trailers back, you turn to the right to go to the right because the right makes the first one go left, which makes the other one go right. And if you're working a job where you have to back up with three trailers, you should quit because that's a bad job. Like, that's, that's totally unreasonable. Um, but anyway, this is not just to be perverse. This is actually to get it to happen right. You've got to come at it backwards. And in order to be zealous for the good, you've got to have something up there that comes straight from God and gives meaning to it. So Peter's got it right. Look at Nero. He is scary over there. Check out his scary pointy finger like, that's it, upside down. That's the way it should be. He's got his scary sleeve tattoo there. He's, uh, no, that's, that's actually just his monogram sleeve. Um, but what's Peter looking at? He is not looking at Nero. Peter's looking at another hand, and it is symbolically the hand of God radiating sort of rays of blessing at him. He's looking past the nails of the persecutor and the, the hammer of the persecutor, and he's looking straight to God, who is doing the only thing that matters, calling him blessed. And that brings us to where Peter's attention is. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Verse 15. Now, here are three different translations of verse 15. This is, um, I don't know if it's, it's my favorite verse this week, at least. Look at this one. ESV says, have no fear of them, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. New American Standard says, do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts. And the NIV says, uh, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Now, I really like the way that NAS gets this because it says sanctify Christ. That's the most literal. It literally says sanctify Christ. Um, Normally, we think of Christ sanctifying us, right? To sanctify is to cause to be holy, but that's not what it has to mean. Here it means not make him holy. We don't make Christ more holy. We don't make him more sanctified. 
what we do is recognize and honor his holiness. And that's why the NIV and the ESV render it that way, to honor him as holy, to sanctify him. We set him apart. We don't rank him alongside anything else. Instead, in our hearts, we preserve a holy of holies where he reigns without a rival. We sanctify him. It's a fantastic sentence, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. If it still sounds funny, think about the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, especially as we, as we um, sang it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, not a word we use very often. It means holied, holy made, made holy or recognized as holy. Sanctified be your name. That's literally what we're saying. We're praying for God to sanctify his name. And how? By his kingdom coming and his will being done. And where? On earth as it is in heaven. We're praying, God our Father, may your name be as holy on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as much as it is in heaven. We're praying for God to sanctify his name here among us. How holy is the name of God in heaven? Holy, holy, holy. The name of God is doing just fine without you, thank you very much. It's quite holy in heaven, but on earth? Well, that's a different story. The name of God is not sanctified on earth as it should be. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for the transformation of the world to be a place where the name of God is sanctified. And this command in Peter, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, is a command for the transformation of the heart, that he would be as holy in our hearts as he is in himself. Sanctify Christ the Lord in your hearts. It's a staggering command. If it's too much for your mind to to, uh, grasp, consider the opposite. Um, In the book of Numbers, Moses throws a tantrum, it's a little tantrum, but it counts because he's ignoring God's orders and he may be taking a little bit of credit for delivering Israel from its needs. And so the Lord says to Moses, this is where he's supposed to talk to the rock and said he hits it a couple of times and yells at the Israelites. Um, God says, because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people, uphold me as holy, literally to sanctify me in the eyes of the people. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. Moses and Aaron there were supposed to sanctify the Lord and they did not. Now the real opposite of sanctifying something is profaning it or even blaspheming it. And this also is an Old Testament, a Bible phrase. Um, There are places where God's servant are told not that they are blaspheming the name of God or even profaning it, but causing it to be profaned. There are several places, but in Ezekiel 36, God says he's gonna take control of finally unprofaning his name and says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. That is, I will sanctify my great name. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So sanctify Christ, but how? Well, look at this. This is our passage. Have no fear of them, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter's quoting here a passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 8. In context, Isaiah 8, actually, God talking to the prophet Isaiah about the rebellious houses of Israel and saying, they're threatening you, they're, they're causing all kinds of trouble, but don't fear them, don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of stumbling, uh, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. I could have stopped quoting earlier than that, but I wanted the rock of stumbling bit because that's on Peter's mind elsewhere in First Peter, right? So this lets you know he's got Isaiah 8 in the back of his mind. And instead of saying just sanctify the Lord of hosts and fear him, what's he say? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. 
This is a New Testament proof of the divinity of Christ, right? You rarely get in the Bible the statement, quote, Christ is God, or you rarely get Jesus saying something like, quote, I am God. What do you get? Well, you get what you'd expect of someone who knows the Old Testament. You say, oh, you know that God guy from the Old Testament? This is him, right? You get pointing to Jesus and saying, you know how we're supposed to sanctify the Lord and revere him? Sanctify Christ. You might want to put a little sticky tab in that for the next time Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. They've got a Bible that's kind of, their translation's kind of cooked to get around the hardest passages about the deity of Christ, but they have trouble cooking the cross-references, so a <laughs> little, little freebie for you there. Um, <laughs> the, third, the third thing I want to get through here is this fantastic, wait a minute, I skipped something. Let me make sure I didn't leave out anything great. Oh, no, yeah, I got to tell you this. So um, the word fear that comes up in the Isaiah passage, this is the real thing we really pick up from the Old Testament background. Fear him, notice the contrast, don't fear them, and it doesn't just say, buck up, spunky, stop fearing people. It says, no, 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 if you're going to stop fearing people, you're going to have to run that fear out with a bigger, badder fear. Um, Fear him. What Peter is showing us is that fear of man is such a powerful, controlling force that it has to be driven out by fear of God. This is the medicine that cures fear of man. This is, a, this is a fire break, you know, when you fight fire with fire by actually burning down some territory to make a fire break so the oncoming fire can't hop that fire break anymore. Basically, when the fire gets to the zone, it can't burn anything else because we already burned it. When the fear of man gets to this zone where Christ is sanctified in your heart, the fear of man can't burn anything down. You already burned it all down with fear of the Lord. There's nothing there for it to feed on because you're already dominated by a reverence for God and a a, a dominating passion not to offend him. A 16th century commentator, 17th century, sorry, commentator on this, uh, Leighton, says this, this sanctifying of God in the heart composes the heart and frees it from fears. This fear as greatest overtops and nullifies all lesser fears. The heart possessed with this fear has no room for the other. It turns the other fears out of doors. It resolves the heart in point of duty, resolving what it should and must do, that it must not offend God by any means. If you've ever had an accountability group of any kind, whether to work on um, beating a besetting sin or just something for fitness or health or diet, anything where you had to keep short accounts and report to a group that would all sort of nod their, uh, wag their head and say, oh, I'm so disappointed. Um, And if you've ever corrected your behavior because you didn't want to face the accountability group and have to tell them what you did. One piece of advice here is I'm not saying accountability groups are bad, but God's kind of the ultimate accountability group. Sort of like, oh, if I do that, I got to tell God. Wait, he already knows. Wait, he's right here. Wait, (laughs) right? That should make you a little bit afraid, right? There's a reverential fear. There's, There's nowhere to escape from God. Now, this brings us to the third point. Be prepared to make a defense. And this is a fantastic verse. It's the memory verse of all Christian apologists. Be prepared to make a defense. I'm gonna go with this one kind of hammer and tongs and just take each, each passage, each phrase as we go. Always being prepared. Notice it says being prepared. It doesn't say always giving an answer, but always being prepared to give an answer. I'm not saying this to let you off the hook. There are probably other passages that we might go to that talk about going out and strategically finding people and making connections. But this doesn't say that. It just says, be prepared. That's your job. Always be ready. Um, It's sort of like when Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And we expect him to say, so go work. But instead, what's he say? He says, so pray to the Father and ask him to send workers. 
Now you may, of course, end up being one of those workers, but that doesn't mean it was just a tricky way to sneak that in. God, Jesus actually wants you to talk to God the Father about missions and not just say, well, there's work to do, let's get to it. Similarly here, the point is to be prepared. Because being prepared is the whole deal. If you are ready, you will get a chance to give an answer. If you're not ready, you'll still get a chance to give an answer, but you'll blow it. When I was interviewing for a job at Biola 17 years ago, um, I was coming from Berkeley and trying to get my head on straight after a PhD in theology, and I wanted to work with evangelicals, but I had to kind of like remember what they were by reading books about them. <laughs> and I was going to go interview with Clyde Cook. And this is the last interview. You know, Susan, my wife, is there with me, and we're going to sit there in his office and talk to the president and the provost. And Clyde's pretty impressive. He's like eight feet tall and has like white hair and these piercing blue eyes that I always wanted to ask him, are those contacts or is that real? And <laughs> can you see my soul right now? Or only sometimes. So, and I assumed that Dr. Cook would be asking me hard questions about dispensational eschatology. So I had bought a couple books and I was reading them on the flight, you know, and I was just like underlining and checking things in the Bible and getting this right. I wanted it to be on the tip of my tongue. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go premillennialism, right? I wanted, to, I wanted to nail this thing, you know, come right back with it. He never asked me about eschatology at all. As I was talking to him, he said to me, why do you love your wife? My wife's sitting right here beside me. She turns to me as if expressing interest in my answer. <laughs> and I said, well, my wife, because I love <laughs> her, because she's, um, I really love my wife. I, yeah, she's pretty and... Um, Known her a long time, uh, fondness. That was it. It was it was over. I, I eventually said something, but not much. Um, I, I feel like 17 years later, I'm still trying to make this up to her. Although she was in first service, and she said to me, "Oh, I forgot all about that," because because that's how awesome she is, right? I mean, what kind of loser? isn't sort of mentally preparing himself, if asked, to say what's great about his wife. I'm the kind of loser who's like boning up on theology really quickly. This is not just anybody. If you know Susan, you know she sparkles with life and scintillates with joy. She, uh, what do you call it, effervesces, right? Like I could say she caught my eye in sixth grade and turned my head in high school and captured my heart in college. I could have done all that. Like this is not the time or the place I'm supposed to be preaching the Bible. That was the time and place, and I blew it, right? The spotlight came on, they handed me the mic, the relevant audience was there, and I went, yeah, <laughs> not prepared. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing her, well, that would be bad, um, but like a hundred tongues to sing her praises, or, or one, actually, at the moment, would have been, would have been nice. Uh, Here's what was really wrong with that, though. I, I, was, I was trying to be a good, um, a good potential hire and, and get my theology straight and, and clear. Um, the problem is I was more afraid of the president of the university than I was of my wife. And I don't mean afraid like she's going to nag me forever. I mean afraid in the sense that I wouldn't want to do anything to offend her. What if I offended the president of the university who might offer me a job? Yeah, have to get another job. That's a bummer. You know, get over it pretty soon, though. What if I really offended the person I'm not supposed to offend at all? That's really hard to get over. I had my fear in the wrong place. I needed more fear of Susan to cast out fear of the president. 
What you're supposed to do here is to prepare and to pray. You're supposed to be ready to give an answer. What kind of, uh, you're supposed to ask God to send you somebody who has questions or send you to somebody who needs those answers. Um, you're supposed to ask for it daily. Send them Monday, send them Tuesday, so on and so on. The next bit, prepared to make a defense or to give an answer. I think it's important here uh, that the idea that you're gonna give an answer to someone who asks presupposes that you've done something that has provoked their curiosity, right? You've lived in such a way that they come to you and say, what is the deal with that? What's going on there? I now need a verbal answer. They've seen something and it makes them wonder why. Now I think there's a generational shift going on right now where everybody says they wanna act out their faith but not talk about it. Um, and supposedly, this is in reaction to a previous generation, which supposedly talked and explained their faith too much but never acted on it. Now, I'm not sure I believe either side of that. And, and the point is, why should we pretend there's a dichotomy here? Why not just play show and tell, right? Why not show them and then tell them? Um, it's, it's a false dichotomy. There's no reason those need to be divorced. But notice you do, and this may be the word for today, you do have to give an answer. I mean an actual, splainy, verbal answer, right? You have to answer. You have to talk. You have to say coherent sentences and pronounce your words right. It, it can't be pantomime, right? Where someone says, tell me about the hope that is in you. You can't go, right? You can't do that. You can't do semaphore, like take out flags and signal that. Everybody loves to quote St. Francis of Assisi saying, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words, right? <laughs> Well, actually, that's, a, that's an okay sentiment. Um, Francis never said it. I'm pretty sure we can prove that. Um, and even if he did say it, he shouldn't have, right? He should have just acted it out. <laughs> right? Like, there's something performatively incoherent about him saying, you know, what, Francis, don't explain this to me. Just live it. Right? Anyway, um, he should have done it wordlessly. Here's the thing. There's a, there's a, a phrase in apologetics. Um, I think it might ultimately come from Blaise Pascal. First, make people wish Christianity were true and then show them that it's true, right? First, you get in there and you show them something where they look at you and say, man, I wish I believed there was a God and Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, I don't believe in fairies either, but um, be kind of cool to believe that. I wonder if it's true. I wonder if there's any way for me to become actually credibly convinced that this thing I wish were true was true. This doesn't mean that in order to prove to them that it's true, you need to go off and get a master's degree in apologetics. It also doesn't mean you need to cram theology all the time on the airplane when you probably ought to be talking to your wife. Um, it doesn't mean you must become one of the certified apologeti. You know the apologeti? They're a sacred order. They walk among us. We need, we need apologeti, I think, everywhere. And we've got them. We've got lots of them here. They, they find your lack of faith disturbing, right? <laughs> so, and that's good. Um, but this doesn't mean that in order to fulfill 1 Peter 3, 15, that you have to go out and become one of those people. What does it say in context? Sanctify Christ in your hearts as Lord. Don't be afraid of people. Revere Christ and be ready. You, just, you have to know your Bible. You have to commune with Christ. You have to have him deep in your heart and on the tip of your tongue so that when someone hands you the mic, turns on the lights, gathers the right audience and says, why do you love Jesus? You don't go, ah, because he's cute and stuff. So uh, prepared to make a defense. And it's a defense, next phrase, for the hope that's in you. 
Um, this is to give a reason for the hope. Now, a lot of people are walking around with hope, and um, I don't usually, I mean, sometimes I feel perverse and I like to burst optimistic bubbles, but usually I think everyone's saying everything's gonna be okay and everything's saying, you know, they're optimistic and things are going a certain way. You ever ask them why? Like, what are the grounds for your assuring me that this is how it's gonna go? Why do you think everything's gonna be okay? And they end up having um, really empty answers. And there's an incredible deflationary account when you actually ask someone to give grounds for their hope. Now, if you ask a Christian why they say something like, actually, everything's gonna be okay, and you say, oh, really? Why? I go around popping optimist bubbles for a living. Why do you think everything's gonna be okay? The Christian can say, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That's the sense in which everything's gonna be okay. Um, Now, you have to do this, just bumping into the next phrase a little bit, with humility, with gentleness and respect, um, here's what I think this means in this context about giving a reason for the hope. You don't want to come at people and say, I have a reason for my hope. You do not have a reason for your hope. You can just blunder right into people and say, let me invite you now in this conversation to utter despair, right? People do need to despair of things they have false hopes in. That doesn't mean you need to be the one who blunder busses in and say, what's it like to have no grounds for your hope, loser? Right? Um, And that's why, uh, so Peter does believe this. He says, you, talking to Christians, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransomed from futility. If we've been ransomed by the work of Christ from futility, that means those who do not yet know Christ are still in the power of futility. There's grounds for despair there. Um, I think that's why Peter says, yeah, that's how bad the situation is. You need to talk to them with gentleness and respect I think this attitude of gentleness and respect that should characterize our giving an answer is rooted in uh, an attitude towards God and then it's extended to others. What do I mean by that? How do you want to get a good case of gentleness and respect? How do you want to get humility? A lot of us have trouble cultivating humility because we intentionally cultivate peer groups in which we're sort of the big fish in the small pond. We're surrounded with people who don't make things awkward by disagreeing with us. And so we feel pretty good about ourselves by checking our peer group and saying, I'm doing all right here, comparatively. One way to burst this bubble is to hang out with God. All right, so then you're kind of looking around playing the comparison game going, I think I'm doing all right compared to, oh no, I'm dust and ashes. Right? Like, let me check my work here. Like, it's not perfect, but grading on the curve, it's, I'm a worm and less than a man. Right? This, this actual attitude of knowing your real place in the world gives you real, accurate humility. And that's an attitude that you then take into relations with others. And I think that's the kind of thing people say, what's the deal? How can you be gentle and meek? How can you be humble? Where do you get that? Uh, and the answer is, well, I, I do actually get to hang out with God. Like, I realize... I'm a very small fish in a very big pond because the pond includes the Lord and I'm under him. Then this last phrase, having a good conscience. With gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Oh, I gotta get that verse out of there. We'll just look back at Peter here for a second. Um, Having a good conscience. This word makes people go crazy sometimes. This is not about perfection. This is not about having an absolutely clean slate with a perfect uh, track record. It is about walking in the light. It's about confessing your sins. It's about eliminating vices from your life, hating sin more than hating the punishment of sin, right? Getting to the point where you hate sin more than you hate and fear the punishment of sin. It's about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus and taking on Christ-likeness progressively. Having a clear conscience means that when you are prepared to give an answer, 
you don't instead think, mm, I know what I should say, but I don't think I'm the right person to talk. I think I better not witness because I'm a tax cheat. I think I better not witness because I'm an imposter. I think I better not witness because I use porn. I'm foul-mouthed. I better not witness or testify to Christ because I am vain and cocky and everyone knows it. I'm divorced. I skip devotions. I fib. I'm somehow not ready to move up to the front line when called on. I'm in no shape being a false person to tell people true things. I'm off the front line because I don't have a good conscience. That's the kind of thing Peter's saying, that's got to go away. You have got to get a clear conscience so you can talk to people about the truth and bear witness with humility and respect. If there is anything holding you back from obeying this command, you should fix it today. Again, I'm not talking about perfections. If it's a sin, repent of it from the heart. Actually turn from it. If it's a habit, get some strategic help in dismantling that thing. If it's false guilt over something that's not actually a sin, that's kind of a big deal too because it means you're taking your readings from someone besides God. And it means you've got to figure out how to start ignoring that input from everybody else and get a new peer group, a peer group that includes the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, which tells you your actual status. You've got to let the fear of him drive out the fear of man. Above all, sanctify Christ in your hearts. This is how all the rest of this is possible, to recognize him as holy and to revere him with a godly fear, to count him as the one who is God, to count him, Christ, as the one who is just and the justifier of those who come to him, the one who's holy, 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 the one who's the giver of holiness to those who call out to him in faith. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your holiness. Thank you for the holiness of your name, Lord. We ask that you would empower us and enable us to sanctify you in our hearts so that you could be as holy to us as you are in yourself. Lord, would you reveal yourself to us and show us the way to go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.